You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. As we uh, continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, I'd like to start with a question, which is, uh, what is a disciple of Jesus? What is a disciple of Jesus? And sometimes it's helpful to start with what something isn't when you try to understand what it is. And so I'll do that. It, it, being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you're a fan or an admirer of Jesus, simply that alone. Like, you're cool with the Son of God. That's not what it means to be a disciple. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that you uh, say you love Jesus or actually mean it, but then live however you want. That's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't even mean that you read your Bible regularly, you pray, you give, and you show up to service every week. It's more than that. Being a disciple of Jesus is more than that. I know we're at the beginning of Mark's gospel, but think with me for a minute about the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28, what's called the Great Commission. Jesus says to his followers, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So from this, we could answer, a disciple is someone who's been baptized in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They've called on God. They've had all their sins washed away. And then what? And then for the rest of their life, they buckle up, try not to get stained by the world, wait for Jesus to come the end. Is that right? No, that's not right. When God saves us, we're brought into a discipleship relationship With Jesus, a disciple, that word means learner. It's an apprentice. It's a follower of a teacher. In your case, if you're a Christian, your teacher is Jesus. And Jesus couldn't have made it any plainer what his curriculum entails when he says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Who is worthy to have everything they say obeyed? What teacher is to be so trusted in all that they teach? Only Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is complete allegiance to him. Everything he says is to be obeyed. To obey what he says, all of it, any of it requires what? It requires that we know what he says. Do you know what Jesus says? Are you familiar with what he commands? Man, if if only there were a book that had all all that Jesus had taught that we could open anytime we want and grow in our obedience to him. We heard one thing that Jesus commands last week in Pastor Bob's sermon, Mark 1.15, when Jesus proclaims in Galilee, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe in the gospel. We could start there with that one command this morning. Repent and believe in the gospel. Have you obeyed this command? Have you personally repented of your sin and turned to Jesus for salvation? If you have, may that pattern repeat itself over and over in your daily life. We never move past the need to repent and believe as Christians, but if you haven't, If you've never repented and turned to Christ in faith, may God grant you those gifts. And they're both spoken of as gifts in the New Testament. 
the gift of repentance, the gift of faith. May he grant you those this morning so that in the next 30 minutes, your life might be changed. And you can say with many others here this morning, I've left everything to follow Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, there is no better leader There's no greater lover of your soul. No one's done more for you than Jesus. No one will care for you like him. Surrender to his love. Do it today. We heard Mark 1, 16 to 20, uh, read earlier in the ESV. Uh, I'll read it again, this time in the message paraphrase, just to add a little color uh, to the scene. Uh, The late Eugene Peterson in the message put it this way. Passing along the beach of Lake Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew net fishing. Fishing was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me and I'll make you a new kind of fisherman. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed him. A dozen yards or so down the beach, he saw two other brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons. They were in the boat, mending their fish nets. Right off, he made the same offer, And immediately they left their father Zebedee, the boat, the hired hands, and they followed. Two main uh, parts to the the message this morning. These are in your uh, outline. And the second follows the first. So the first is Jesus calls us to follow him. And then after that, as we go, Jesus makes us what he calls us to be. And then we'll end our time with a, a corporate response prayer exercise thing. So Jesus calls us to follow him. He says, follow me, and immediately they dropped their nets, Mark says, and they followed him. Notice that Jesus goes to them. As he's passing along the Sea of Galilee, he sees uh, these fishermen. He goes to their workplace. I point this out because in the first century, this is not the way that the teachers and students got linked up. The students would go out and seek the teacher, They would apply to the program. They would go and and find a mentor to teach them. They would take the initiative. But Jesus is unique. He goes out and finds those that he wants to follow him. He, He didn't wait for the fish to come to him. He goes fishing for followers. By the way, there's going to be a lot of fish references, so hold on. And with the authoritative voice of God... Like Yahweh to Abram in Genesis 12, who says, go out from Ur and come follow me to a place where you don't know where you're going. Jesus says, with that kind of authority, he says to these four fishermen, follow me. And not knowing where they're going, they leave everything and follow him. It's interesting that in in, uh, Jesus in verse 15, we read, he went about Galilee uh, proclaiming, repent and believe in the gospel. And then he comes to these four fishermen Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he doesn't say to them, repent and believe in the gospel. Not in so many words. He says, come and follow me. And some scholars say, well, it's because they already were converted under his preaching ministry in Galilee, and now they're, they're just waiting for instructions. And so he doesn't have to say to them, repent and believe in the gospel. They already had. He says, come and help. And that makes sense. Or maybe there's more than one way to call people to repent and believe in the gospel. I think what's happening in this story is exactly what it means. It's an illustration of what it means to repent 
and believe. Think about it. What's it mean to repent? It means to turn, right? To change direction. And what's it mean to believe? It means to trust, to give your allegiance to someone. We see Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they they leave their nets. They turn from their nets and they trust the one who's calling to them to follow him. A bit later, we see James and John, and they leave too. They turn from their father Zebedee. They turn from the nets, the boats, the, the hired help, and they pivot in their allegiance now to Jesus. Repent and believe. Jesus preached it. Verse 15, we see it illustrated by these four fishermen in verses 16 to 20. They leave everything to follow Jesus. That's what it means to repent and believe. That's what these two sets of brothers did. Based on the descriptions, uh, James and John's fishing business appears to be more lucrative than Simon and Andrew's. The, the Sea of Galilee, in the words of one ancient historian, was teeming with fish. There's a lot of money to be made there, good living to make. That appears to be the case for Zebedee and Sons Fishco. They were a, a big fishing enterprise, less so for Andrew and Simon, who were little fish by comparison. But in both cases, and here's the point, in both cases, they left everything, whatever their everything was, they left everything, all four of them, to turn and to follow Jesus. To follow him where? They didn't know, but they trusted him. And so when he called, they went. And God is like that. Abraham leaving Ur, not knowing where he was going, but trusting the one who called him. These four fishermen leaving their trades, their their homes, their family, what they knew behind, because for whatever reasons, they had a trust in their heart that the one who called them could be trusted, that they should go with him. Isn't this radical? Leaving everything to follow someone? In our society, this would be a big deal for anyone to leave everything and go anywhere, right? Right? That would. In a traditional society like theirs, an honor and shame culture, it would be extraordinary to make this break with work and family. It really would. In fact, the the labor of these fishermen, if it was, as we suspect, so critical to the fishing enterprise in which these families were engaged, their departure would seem to be financially devastating for those that they left behind. It would put them at risk. Why then would they leave everything, all they have, all they know, to follow him? Maybe you've wondered that before. Maybe you're wondering what you would do in that situation if you were called to leave it all and follow him. What was so compelling about Jesus that they would follow him? Did it have anything to do with his appearance? That might seem like a weird question, but St. Jerome, a Christian priest who lived in the fourth century, he thought so. He said this, There must have been something divinely compelling in the face of the Savior. Otherwise, these men would not have acted so irrationally. His very countenance must have seemed irresistible. So just something about his face, something about that stare. I don't know. That's a nice thought. But his face wasn't all that irresistible to his hometown folk who rejected him. And his face certainly wasn't irresistible three years later to the people that crucified him. But we're still left with the question, aren't we? Why do some come? Why do some follow him and others don't? Why why do some sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back? 
And others sing with Sinatra, right? You know, I did it my way. Why did these four leave all to follow Jesus? I I think St. Jerome got it half right. Jesus was irresistible, but it wasn't his face. The prophet Isaiah says there's nothing about his appearance that would make anyone desire him. I'm inclined to think it was his words. Just as God spoke creation into existence, showing the undeniable power and, and efficacy of his words, Jesus, the son of God, who came to recreate, he speaks here to these four fishermen and his words are also undeniably powerful and effective. On this ordinary day at work, God calls out to them. They hear in the words of Jesus a command that they cannot ignore. His words sink deep into their hearts and for them at this moment, he was irresistible. They could do nothing other than follow him, and so they did. And maybe that's your story too. Maybe you have a story like that. One day, you're just going about your business, just living your life, but on that day, God calls your name. Amen? I was 13 years old, uh, sitting in the sanctuary at Swope Park Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri, and our pastor, Dr. Perry, Uh, He had preached the gospel every week. As long as I'd been there, I was there my whole life. Every week, we're there in church. He's preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. And I'm hearing the words, and it's just going like this. And it's a good Baptist church, so we have an altar call every week. There's an aisle down the middle. And one Sunday, I heard God's word for me. And I got up, and I am not, I'm not making this up for a preaching effect or anything. It was surreal. I'm halfway down the aisle going to respond before I even realized I was out of my chair. God called my name that day, and he was irresistible to me, and I've never been the same. Notice, we'll go from Kansas City back to Galilee. Notice that Jesus doesn't come alongside Simon and Andrew and say, hey, can I fish with you guys? And he doesn't sidle up to James and John and say, hey, you have a really successful business. I'd like to take it to the next level. (laughs) Zebedee and sons from one to five locations. (laughs) He doesn't want to come into their lives, come alongside their business and, and just make it all that it can be. Jesus calls them and he calls you and me to leave it all, whatever it is, to leave it all and come away with him, follow where he leads. And friends, there's such a temptation to consider how we can invite Jesus into our lives when the reality is Jesus graciously invites us into his life. It's about his life, his kingdom, his mission. I think this was a movie like in the 30s or 40s, God is your co-pilot, something like that. But friends, God is not your co-pilot. He's not over on the side, like just hitting little switches and stuff while you steer wherever you want to go. Jesus doesn't follow us around hoping we'll give him a try or just so we can give him a chance to be part of our lives. Now, he is incredibly patient. He is amazingly gracious, is he not? But make no mistake, Jesus wants to blow your life up, not in a destructive way, in a good, powerful, kingdom-bringing way that results in you loving God and neighbor, that kind of way. He wants his way to become your way. 
not the other way around. Jesus is Lord. He's a loving Lord, but he is Lord. Jesus is king. He's a benevolent king. But make no mistake, he is king. It's this one who calls us to follow him, to leave behind, to turn, to repent from whatever else it is that we put our security in, that we find our hope in, if it's not him. Those things we look to for comfort, for us to be okay, things like jobs and and home, family, health. Not that these aren't good things. These, These are good things. These are gifts from a good God. The problem is not with the gift, is it? It's with the recipient of the gift, which is you. And it's me a little bit too, but there's more of you. So it's mostly you. (laughs) We have a tendency to turn good things into ultimate things, to place too much importance in them, don't we? And when we do that, we're... We're like the city of Athens that Paul describes in Acts 17. It was full of idols. Our hearts can become full of idols. And they they stay that way if we don't tend to them. And so if we're not asking ourselves at regular intervals, is there anything I'm making too important in my life? Am I looking to uh, someone else, something else, more than Jesus to bring me comfort and hope and love and meaning? Where does my security come from? Psalm 121, where does my help come from? Where does my salvation come from? When we put too much weight on people and things that aren't Jesus, first of all, they can't bear the weight. It's a huge burden. But more importantly, they're not Jesus. They're not the Savior. And a substitute Savior cannot save. I'm not sure who needs to hear what, but... I trust someone needs to hear that your kids can't save you. Their accomplishments, their good choices in life, the honor they bring to your family, your kids can't save you, so quit putting all that pressure on them to be perfect. Your job can't save you, so quit thinking that promotion or that next big client is gonna be what you need to secure your future. Your country can't save you, So when times are hard, please, please, please reach for the cross, not the flag. Your church can't save you. You can't save you. No one can save you unless his name is Jesus, and then he can. He can save you, but only he can. Because of who he is, Lord, King, Savior, he's the only one who can legitimately call people to leave everything behind and follow him. He's the only one worthy For Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they left everything. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left Zebedee. What are your nets? What are your boats? Who's your Zebedee? Who has your ultimate allegiance this morning? Is it Jesus? What have you left to follow him? Jesus has a great work for his followers uh, to do. But there must be a, a leaving of the old behind to embrace the new. And, and notice something, while these uh, fishermen break ties with the past, the new trade they take up has a parallel with what they leave behind. Here's what I mean. They didn't leave fishing to become builders of men or real estate agents of God's subdivisions. 
right? They left fishing for fish to become fishers of people. He takes what they are, who they are, and he just redirects all of that in the direction of himself. They still fish, right? But they, they catch people now. Imagine the bragging rights. I'm sure they would have pulled some big fish out of the Sea of Galilee, but now they're like, look at what I caught, this big. <laughs> Just pulling them in. Jesus calls us to follow him. And as we follow, he makes us what he calls us to be. He says to Andrew, Simon, James, John, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Presumably, he said the same thing to, sorry, to, he says it to all four of them. That's what I mean. He makes them become what they are not yet. And this does not happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. It's not like flipping a switch. There's a process. It takes time. It happens as we follow him. That's what we see in the lives of these four fishermen. They didn't just jump overnight from being fishermen to fishers of men. They learned from Jesus what it meant to go fishing for people. They watch him, they ask him questions, they fail, they get up and try again. They're shaped, they're molded, they're trained in all the required skills of this new kind of fishing. Uh, this metaphor for fishing is pretty uh, interesting because it's positively spoken of by Jesus, but you read uh, most of the rest of the, Old Test or the, new, the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's negative, it's ominous. There's a, several passages that talk about fishing. I'll just read two. Jeremiah 16, 16 says, Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I'll send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them. My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. He's fishing for people that have broken his law. Amos 4.1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who opposes, uh, oppress the poor, crush the needy, say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. They shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. So the way hooks and nets and fishing are, are talked about throughout the Old Testament, it's not a good thing to be caught when God went fishing in the days of the prophets, what was for judgment? You didn't want that. But the fishing Jesus has in mind is not for judgment, it's for release, right? It's for deliverance. It's to enable people to escape judgment. The coming of Jesus and his kingdom makes everything new. Even fishing isn't what it used to be. These four fishers had plenty of experience hooking Fish. They knew it meant death for these unsuspecting tilapia. I googled what kind of fish are in the Sea of Galilee, and it's a lot of tilapia. So there you go. But now, Jesus says to these fishermen, they'll be hooking people. They'll be pulling people out of the waters of judgment so that those who were once dead can breathe fresh air and not drown in the sea. Just like Jesus, they're equipped for this task by the word of God and the spirit of God. 
And with Jesus leading them, they will become what he calls them to be. And with Jesus leading you, you will become what God has called you to be. As bumbling and stumbling as his disciples are then and now, Jesus is confident he can make them to be what he wants, what they need. Why is he so confident that he can promise this to them? What what if they don't get there, right? What if they fail? What if the enemy halts their plans? What if, what if? The reason Jesus is so confident and Mark's audience ought to be is because of what we've seen up to this point in Mark 1. Verses 1 to 8, if you recall, John the Baptist has prepared the way and Jesus shows up on the scene to walk that way. And then we might say, how can we be sure he's the one? That the Messiah is Jesus, the one who comes after John. Well, verses 9 to 11, at his baptism, he's commended and commissioned by his father who says, this is my beloved son in him I'm well pleased. And then he's empowered by the spirit who comes like a dove, descends on him, marking him out as the one, the coming one. And then in verses 12 and 13, Jesus is led to the wilderness. You might remember that for the temptation. He emerges victorious after 40 days and nights with the devil. And only then, as Mark takes us through the story, chapter one, do we see Jesus proclaiming the gospel. And what is that? The victory of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, that's God's reign in real life. It's here. The day of release is here. It's freedom time, friends. So get free, repent, and believe in the gospel, the good news. Can I speak to some fish for a minute? I'm going to anyway. (laughs) If you've already been caught in God's net, if you've been fished out of the waters of judgment, you've believed the gospel, you've turned from your sins, you've been delivered, then you're invited to get fishing like these other four that Jesus found on the shore of Galilee. The specifics of your calling The the shape of your life won't be exactly like mine or those sitting next to you or Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John. We all have different roles to play, but as God's people, we could say we're all part of the one and the same fishing expedition. Jesus calls each of us to follow him, but what it looks like in your life has to do with your calling, your gifts, your personality, your passions, how he's made you. Unlike our four fishermen, and in Ron's prayer, most of us are not called to literally leave everything behind and set out and follow him. But just like our four fishermen, we're all called, all of us, to leave behind any allegiance, any love that is greater than than our full pledge to Jesus. A radical announcement like the kingdom of God is here calls for a a radical response. All prior claims lose their urgency. Only one thing is urgent, following Jesus and joining his mission. I, I, I don't know why, but at this point, I know we're not at a wedding, but I thought... Dearly beloved, that makes sense here for me for some reason. So, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. I'll just keep it going. 
to follow Jesus. Amen. To repent and believe in him, to escape God's judgment, to find forgiveness and new life. And as you follow him, as you go, fish with Jesus. For the rest of your life, live for him in your calling in such a way that you point others to him with your fishy lives and with your fishy lips. I know a lot of you want to do that fish face right now. Just resist for a little bit longer. I know he is. I see you, Rick. Jesus is a loving Lord. Jesus is a benevolent king. There's no one like him. There's no one more worthy of your life, of your all, of your leaving everything to follow. You're going to follow somebody. Let it be him. Hear his voice this morning as he says to each one of us, follow me. Let me. Let's, let's end with a little exercise here, if you would. As I was preparing throughout the week, I just kept sensing this prayer rising up in me, which was, unfurl our hands, Lord. Unfurl our hands, Lord. And so if you would close your eyes with me, I want you to close your fists. This posture, closed fists, as it relates to our message, has to do with us holding on to what we think we need to survive to be safe and secure, things that will give our life meaning, nets, boats, security, family, what's known, and then open your hands. This posture is one of trusting that Jesus will provide, and so we don't need to grasp anything but him. We can leave our hands open. We can leave everything. We can lay down our nets. We can lay down our burdens We can lay down our idols and follow him because he's got our back and our front and both sides. He has our whole life in his hands. He can be fully trusted. So I want you to close your hands one more time and I want you to think specifically about what it is you may be holding on to too tightly other than Jesus. If you don't know, ask God. We'll give you a few seconds here to to show you, ask God in this moment what that might be. So we pray, Lord, unfurl our hands. Open your hands, church. I want you to look at your open hands. God can help us to live with this kind of posture, this kind of letting our nets, letting all those other things besides Jesus go. Leaving all to follow him. Amen. Amen.